What's up? What's up? This is Zach Boschman checking in. You are locked into the Citizen Truth podcast. We're honored today to have Leo Zilig on the podcast. Leo, I want to talk about Patrice Lumumba today. Um, and before we get into him, uh, I was wondering if you could take me back to the late 1800s, early 1900s. How did Belgium take control and ownership of the Congo? Um, it's, it's a really good question and the right place to start, um, Zach. So I think, I think what we have to do is understand that the late 19th century saw across the continent where there'd already been, of course, the pulverization of centuries of the slave trade, but now increasingly direct intervention and the early stages of co colonial um, control. A and Belgium in the sense was a, a late player in late European player in that game and a small, uh, and a small European state. The driver initially was through uh, um, imperial adventurers who would chart new territory on the, on the continent, essentially um, uh, kind of bounty hunters seeking um, imperial plunder resources. In the case of the Congo, it was largely carried out by um, Stanley, a, a, a dreadful um, man with um, determination to um, explore the Congo and understand its wealth in the 18, 1860s and 1870s. He then really went with an inventory of the wealth of the Congo um, to European powers, seeking a sponsor who could take direct control of that wealth to deepen um, the, the, plund the, the plunder of um, that central, massive central um, African um, country. So the Belgian king saw an opportunity as a late player and initially took control of the Congo as a personal possession. You know, that this wasn't even um, the full state control, but almost the, the private back garden of the king as a strategy for enriching the, um, the royal purse. And and that was a devastating process in the in the 1870s, taking over um, the treaties which had been negotiated by by Stanley and, and others. That became formalized in the um, famous Berlin Conference in 1884-1885, where European powers who had been fighting each other for control of the continent finally sat down to discuss how that continent could be partitioned. And it was after that conference, so 1885 and on, that um, gradually um, um, Belgium, still under the um, control, um, the Congo still under control of the royal, royal family of, of King Leopold, um, became formalized. And eventually, later on that century, in the start of the 20th century, it actually became, was handed over to the um, to the Belgium um, Belgium state, so that's the broad contour of that of that period of 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 colonial and imperial occupation of the Congo by the um, Belgian state. 
So I was wondering if you could go a little bit into um, what were the the colonial conditions like in, in the Congo? Really good question and absolutely diabolical. Um, the, the, the major the major revenue source, the major um, bounty and plunder from the Congo was from rubber tapping. So huge expansion across the world in the use of rubber, the great source of rubber, of course, from the Congo and particularly from, um, you know, the large number of um, trees, tropical trees that could be could be tapped for for rubber for rubber. So this became a driver for the um, for the Belgian state and um, the great um, the great historian Adam Hothchild has written King Leopold's Ghost, which gives some fascinating and terrifying statistics for what Belgian rule meant in the early part of the 20th century, in the late part of the 19th century under their control, which was a brutal regime of um, rubber exploitation, almost slave-like conditions where people were forced to, um, to, to tap rubber um, on pain of death, um, frequently would go missing, would have their um, um, hands removed if they didn't reach the quota. And um, Hothschild's account states quite clearly that by the end of um, the first decade, and there were huge international campaigns and social movements, actually. But by the end of the first decade of the 20th century, the Congo had lost something like um, um, 10 million people to that um, to that trade in a wow. in a 20 year period. So an astonishing rate of um, of colonial um, murder of genocide. So I think around 1925, uh, Patrice Lumumba is born. Uh, what was his, his upbringing and, and schooling like? He, his is a remarkable story, as is everything about his life, really. He, he was largely self-educated. He received rudimentary um, education in a mission school. He, he took himself off fairly early to um, a regional capital where he did his utmost to um, teach himself um, French and improve the French that he'd learned at school, which was only very basic. And, a French of, and French, of course, the language of the colonial state was the key entrance um, tool for all um, um, for all um, formal jobs and respectable jobs. So he became a figure in um, what was called the Evolue Society. So yeah, this was the moment come out, Evolue. Yeah. So he, 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 forced, he forced himself really onto that track. But, you know, there's great descriptions of his you know, adolescence when he's already left home and that he's um, working um, initially as a, a, a postman or in the, in the post office, but that he spends every night in the very poorly stocked 
um, library um, forcing this regime of um, education and, um, and reading. And so, of course, it develops from from there, which we you know, which we might want to discuss. Yeah. So um, it seemed like you wrote in your book that he didn't necessarily have access to uh, a lot of radical texts. Right. Things were fairly censored. Um, so, you know, what what was his political uh, awakening like? What was that process like? It's a fascinating story. And. What the first thing that we have to understand about the Belgian Congo is that it was described at the time as the empire of silence. So strict censorship, um, very limited ability to move on and move forward in that society as someone with someone as um, bright and brilliant as Lumumba. And it, it meant that you were, you were stalled at every um, opportunity. And of course, the reading, so the reading of newspapers and books was also incredibly limited. So as we will probably discuss later on in his life, he was, he was accused of, of being a communist, which was, of course, laughable. There was no access really to communist um, literature. Um, so his development was all the more brilliant for that, but also halting. So the first step of his, of his political development was very conventional in some respects. It involved him trying to integrate himself fully into that evolue, that literally, you know, literally meaning evolved um, society of a limited number of um, Congolese functionaries or bureaucrats that the colonial state had nominated and were using to drive their project of colonization and the civilizing mission of the Belgian Congo further and deeper into um, uh, and across um, the region and the Congo itself. So he moves quite quickly through the 50s into a respectable position, trying to, um, trying to achieve um, promotion through the ranks of that evolue track to, to um, becoming radicalized as the movement for national liberation develops around the continent and the Congo itself. So it's quite halting. Um, one thing that I should probably say is he, he's, he's arrested um, and thrown into jail, arrested for alleged um, um, fraud in the post office. And this is an, a, a dramatic experience, you know, huge pressures on the Evolue to appear European. They're trained by um, European officers and officials in how to use knives and forks and to behave like um, proper and civilized natives, a diabolical um, and humiliating process. Um, but the consequences of that track of having to do that, feeling yourself um, obliged to do it, was that there were huge expenses as well, beyond what you would earn as a, as a bureaucrat in a, in a, in a state colonial um, post office. So Lumumba was thrown into jail. He writes a book in jail, which is fascinating. And it really captures this sense of Lumumba at the crossroads of 
the the evolue and respectable path to transformation and something more radical. So he's both saying we need Belgium on side, we need to develop a path to our own national liberation, but that's likely to be 10, 20, 30 years off. Um, and we need to relieve some of the pressures that have been put on us by this colonial um, project. So it's a very interesting, but very ambigu ambiguous um, um, book. After he's released from jail, he breaks quite quickly, radicalizes quite dramatically with that movement, which is bubbling up um, from the bottom of Congolese society as, as that society faces the repression and the violence of the, of the, uh, the Belgian state. So is that when he gets out of jail, is that when he becomes like a leader of the, the MNC party? That's, that's right. So the National Congolese Movement or the Mouvement National Congolais, and it's a pre-existing party, and in some respects has a whole combination of different opinions inside it. Uh, Lumumba becomes its preeminent um, figure and leader, I suppose, in 1957, and, and starts um, developing and building that organ organization. He moves to the capital, um, Leopoldville, so from, um, from the east to the west. Um, and that movement, as Lumumba, as its organizer, begins to develop, um, it radicalized in a fascinating kind of dialect dialectical moment. It radicalizes him, and he develops he develops the movement and gives voice and articulation to those that anger and that that popular feeling on the on the ground. So very quickly after the public imprisonment, the publication of his book, he becomes this sp spokesperson not for a tapered national liberation and independence, but a dramatic um, and immediate one. And of course he attends, um, you know, there's a great Pan-African moment in the late 1950s across Africa. And he's radical, Lumumba perhaps more than anyone else is radicalized by that, manages to get to um, Ghana that achieved independence in 19, um, 1957, um, gets to um, the conference of independent, of not independent states, there were two conferences that year, in fact, of um, Pan-African um, colonial um, states still fighting for their independence in December 1958. And of course, this was an amazing gathering of revolutionaries, of nationalists of all different persuasions. The great revolutionary Franz Fanon is there, he meets Lumumba. So this accelerates even further Lumumba's um, radicalization, which of course he then takes back like no other, no other person could, the experience of that um, continental wave um, of freedom. So it's a fascinating and exciting trajectory which um, Lumumba was a, a you know, vital part. So they were able to um, petition Belgium, right, and get the independence um, to happen uh, relatively quickly. Um, 
and Lumumba's party ends up winning uh, a large portion of the vote, right? Um, so Kasavubu becomes the, the president and Lumumba uh, becomes the first prime minister? That's absolutely right. And it's a tense process. You know, waves of radicalization cracked down in January 1959 across the Congo and Leopoldville, um, Here's something I found on the web. Apologies. According to wikipedia.org, <laughs> major riots were... No worries. Sorry, sorry for that. <laughs> the okay. hazard, hazard of having one of those terrible devices. Um, <laughs> so there's waves of radicalization in that last two years. Independence comes in 1960. But, you know, the, the mass of Congolese society is beginning to move and to become um, mobilized. And Lumumba really is able to express that better than any, anyone else. And the Belgian state are terrified. So there's efforts, you know, still, still pushing for a longer transition. The um, state, the Belgian state clearly sees Lumumba as a radical and radicalizing thing, um, figure that they have to try and store. They don't succeed in doing that. They lock him up at the end of 59. He's released because the delic the roundtable discussions which are being held in the Belgian um, capital, Brussels, um, refuse to go on with other delegates from other movements, refuse to continue without him. So he's released, saved really by that, um, that protest. He then leads that, runs rings around the um, politicians, the Belgium, um, politicians in January 19, 1960. And then there's a very fast timetable. Um, in the first half of 1960, remarkable. Um, and the Belgian state all that time plotting to maintain control as well, trying to buy politicians off, not succeeding in most cases, of course, not with Lumumba. Elections held in May, Lumumba's um, MNC wins the majority. But with this sort of compromise makeup that you've just outlined, outlined Zach, Kasavubu um, is um, President Lumumba um, Prime Minister. And of course, there's the famous speech um, in 19, and the 30th of June, 1960, we're coming up to that anniversary where Lumumba, you know, delivers a surprise rebuff to the speech that has been made by the king, the Belgian king, who's, who's turned up in Leopoldville for Independence Day ceremonies, which think, you know, who thinks it will just be a, you know, pat on the back to the natives. And Lumumba says, um, you know, we, we're emerging from slavery and humiliation, and we're doing this on behalf of all Congolese. Uh, an astonishing speech. Yeah, I, I've, I've watched that speech a few times. It's, it's really amazing. Um, but it doesn't really seem that radical. You know, he just seems like he's talking about the conditions, the terrible conditions of uh, colonialization. So do you think that speech is what made him a target um, for Western powers? Or do you think it was it was before that, that they were kind of labeling him as a radical? I think that's a I think that's a really good point and the, and perhaps the most important question. I think 
to be honest, the Belgian state weren't too frightened by it. I mean, a lot of people say otherwise. They were definitely humiliated. There was a standoff afterwards. In terms of protocol, Lumumba hadn't been due to speak. And he realized, you know, as a political um, leader and speaking to over the heads in the sense of the official ceremony in the capital, he needed to address, because it was broadcast on the radio, the, the, the Congolese who'd fought and died and struggled for, um, for that independence. So he was spreading, he was giving ownership to the Congolese to some, sense, to some extent. So great political move. And it was delivered, it was a surprise delivery. So that surprise, of course, shocked the colonial power. But I actually think across the continent, colonial and decolonizing governments um, and powers were quite used to le leaders speaking left and then delivering the compromises and the sellouts after independence. So I don't really think that that was a deal breaker. It would have certainly worried some of them for some days, but there was still the hope that major interests in the Congo, the huge wealth and resources of the Congo, which had been in the hands of, of, the, uh, of the European power were were not going to be disrupted we're not going to be removed yeah so so let's get into that um right away things are challenging right in those first few months after he's elected um because katanga the katanga province wants to secede and that's where all the the mineral wealth is right yeah i mean it was a huge earner on an international scale I mean, it was a major multinational um, copper um, producer, the largest copper reserves in the world at that time, um, although successfully mined um, with American interests and companies. I mean, it was a, uh, an incredible creator of exported wealth, um, enclave capitalism, as it's sometimes described today. And what was quite clear What's remarkable, really, is that independence officially comes on the 30th of June. By the 11th of July, Moses uh, Chombe um, announces himself as the leader of um, an independent state of Katanga. So there's a, already this um, terrible um, split of the wealthiest region of, um, of the Congo. So in a, in a rapid, which is a fascinating point, so no sooner and all very symbolic, of course. No sooner is independence officially won that it breaks away and fragments. You know, and there's there's a picture there, a pattern to what independence looked like, really, perhaps less dramatically across the continent. And and this was 1960s, so still fairly early in terms of the, that wave of um, national liberation. So, Chombe becomes, um, despite you know protests to the contrary, you know, a, a figure that guarantees um, the continuation of the colonial state in new and independent form. So that's, so that's, one, that's one way that independence unravels. I mean, there's all sorts of other things that happened, including, you know, a mutiny um, against Belgian um, officers who were still in charge, um, immediately after independence in Leopoldville. So those soldiers are um, mutinying against their, their white racist officers. 
So Lumumba confronts a, a major imperialist fragmentation of a country that he's just taken control of. And we, you know, and what happens in the coming months is remarkable, tragic, and extraordinary. Yeah, so he's removed from power um, a couple of times, right? Uh, he's he's removed, and then he's reinstated, and then he's removed again. So, could you just go through those those two times that he was uh, removed yeah. from power? Yes. So, what you have from July to, I mean, all sorts of fascinating stories here, but from July through August, you have this incredible movement as the Congo is fragmenting because you have another uh, succession. Um, and Lumumba and Kasavubu to some extent, reluctantly, but Lumumba rushes around the country in, this, in, in a uh, desperate attempt to hold the country together, to develop his forces, to protest against um, the fragmentation of the Congo. So an, an astonishing um, and um, impressive act at literally um, maintaining the unity, which was beginning to fall um, fall apart. He holds a co conference, tries to internationalize the, 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 um, the crisis in the Congo, as it's already being called at that point, um, calls in the United Nations, of course, which is a tragic and terrible mistake, which we all talk about, and um, holds a Pan-African um, conference, part of that wave of continental radicalization that I was telling you about, with figures coming from across the continent to try and um, bring together Pan-African forces that can defend Congo's freedom. He's let down, I think, tragically by um, Kwame Nkrumah, who he's, uh, who's the independent um, leader of um, Ghana, um, who gives him advice, which um, is incredibly problematic, <coughs> not least to leave things in the hands of the United Nations. So then the coups that you're talking about, on the 5th of September, the president Kasavubu shows his true colors and announces that he's dismissed um, Lumumba. Um, the United Nations closes all airports, of course, Lumumba have called them in um, to defend the, the sovereignty of the Congo. And, um, theoretically, which of course they don't do, they defend the, the division of the Congo. And then um, Mobutu on the 14th of September, Mobutu had been a, a, a lieutenant and important supporter and ally of Lumumba in the early days, now forces himself onto the center of the political stage. And he announces the neutralizing of both Kasavubu and Lumumba who had formed separate in just the days between that first um, removal of Lumumba, had formed separate um, um, factions in the parliament. So you have, you have stalemate and worse with Lumumba placed under um, protective custody by the United Nations. So Mobutu uh, took power at that point. Yes, Mobutu, with um, you know a number of others, becomes a key player, and you know there's very good evidence to show that he was doing this work categorically um, 
on behalf of the um, American um, yeah, American money. So Imperial and- um, Yeah, I was going to ask you that because uh, uh, William Bloom in his book, Killing Hope, um, he, he says that the Mobutu coup was uh, designed by the United States. Uh, did you come across that at all in your research? Yes, I, I think there's very good evidence um, for that. The, mm -hmm. the fantastic, um, perhaps the best book that's been written about this period, um, Ludo de Witt's um, The Assassination of Lumumba, which is an astonishing expose of the imperial um, machinations that led to the murder of Lumumba, but make it, he makes it very clear with um, um, plenty of evidence of Mobutu's um, role and the money, of course, that he, that he took. Um, to carry out um, that that second um, removal, as you've mentioned, on the fourteenth of September. Do you have like uh, ten more minutes? Yes, that's that's fine. Absolutely fine. Awesome. I appreciate it. I have a couple more questions I want to ask you. Um, so after after he's removed in the the second coup. Um, the West still sees Lumumba as a threat while he's kind of on house arrest, right? Um, so could you tell me a little bit about the, the CIA poison plot? Yeah, I mean, this, this is fascinating. Probably at about this point, when it was clear um, that Lumumba wasn't going to sit quietly, that he was still a rallying call for a mass movement that was reasonably mobilized or ready to ready to mobilize in his name the it became clear that um Lumumba who couldn't be removed by um constitutional or extra constitutional means would need to be eliminated so it's at this point that you see a number of different plots and I I I'm not sure of the number but certainly four or five you know, there was an, an important American one. The British, of course, were interested in his physical elimination. The Americans um, um, using their agent, um, Larry Devlin, in, who was based in the Congo at the time, um, explored a number of different ways that the member could be um, removed. Um, and, you know, there's interesting details about that. What's important to remember, however, which is often forgotten, it was... So despite this almost universal desire among um, former colonial powers and the United States to remove um, um, and eliminate Lumumba, even though now he'd been you know, separated from political power and cut off from um, um, speaking to his supporters um, through the radio, um, which was now under the control or occupation of the United Nations have no illusions in the United Nations comrades. Um, it is the networks of the Belgian state far deeper and greater into Congolese society that was able to carry out, directly carry out with what Lumumba described in his last letter in December to his wife, um, 1960, Congolese puppets. So those who were willing to sell independence and to work with the um, Belgian state. So they trump all of the other efforts at um, Lumumba's elimination. Yeah, so he, he ended up going on the run at some point, right? Um, and then 
I guess what what was that experience like for him going on on the run? He he speaks to people along the way, right? Yeah, it's it's absolutely right, and perhaps that was his undoing to some extent because he needed to get to Stanleyville, where there's um, core um, supporters, a base which um, was not obeying the orders of the central government in in Leopoldville, so where he could be safe where he could relaunch the movement for a second independence. Um, and, his, and that's where he needed to get to. So he escapes from UN custody on the 27th of November, hides in the back of the car, leaves his compound. Um, and then three days later on the 30th of November, on his way to um, Stanleyville, he's arrested um, again by Congolese troops. Again, the UN refuses to intervene um, to release him. But his slow progress to Stanleyville has been um, stalled by these speeches that he gives. And there was no greater. Um, and of course, he, he would have seen that quite correctly as an attempt to build up support and to rally solidarity to the cause. But nevertheless, it slows his progress to Stanleyville. Um, arrested, transported, um, um, to Leopoldville, and then to, to a large extent, his fate is sealed, mm. and he knows it. Uh, and then, of course, you know, in the next six weeks, there's the um, terrible unraveling of Congolese, the brief, hopeful, brilliant moment of Congolese um, independence, symbolised, embodied by um, Lumumba, in in um, that first. Um, those first months after, after June the thirtieth. Yeah, so Lumumba is captured, of course, and then ends up uh, being transferred right to like some army barracks and um, dying via via firing squad. Um, I just want to ask you one more question. Um, let's go to the Congo today. Uh, I believe Mobutu. Uh, I, I I guess there was some switching between who was in power, right? immediately following uh that initial coup but um he stayed in power till like 1997 right yeah with um and positioned himself in a canny way as an agent um supporting american interests although with you know lots of um shifts um towards what was described what he described in 1970 as um um, authenticity. So, you know, names were taken, um, Congolese, original Congolese names were taken, European names were removed. But nevertheless, as a faithful um, servant, really, to um, essentially to American power and to their and to, and to other interests, but essentially Congo's position in that global economic hierarchy remained under, remained unchanged. So the continuity, which had been sought by the Belgian state in 1960, broken briefly by Lumumba's relentless efforts to make independence meaningful. What he describes in his letter to his wife in 19, the end of 1960 um, as a prison. So independence is not liberation, it's not freedom, it's a prison. So the prison is guarded and controlled from 1964 and the second coup that, um, um, that, that Mobutu undertakes, 
until, as you say, the 1990s by someone who represents those, in, those, those, um, those foreign interests. And the Congo, I mean, the, you know, the Lumumba story isn't over. I mean, there's an incredible movement through the 1960s fought by great freedom fighters like Pierre Mulele, um, even for a time by Anton Gazenga, who take up the mantle of Lumumba's politics, forming popular governments in the Congo and in, in Stanleyville, fighting the mercenary South African racist mercenaries, the Americans and the <coughs> French who are fighting against this attempt to rally the forces for real independence that Lumumba represented. So Lumumbist forces, which aren't finally broken until about 1965. Some people say even later than than that. Um, there's, a, there's another story which we don't have time to go, in, go into really, but of the mass movement um, in, the, in Congolese um, towns and cities that breaks out in, in 1990, continues until about 1997 and comes very close to unseating um, Mobutu and his cronies from power. That's an astonishing story, largely an urban one but um, inspiring. Yeah, so companies like like Glencore um, have been accused of using child labor uh, more recently. Um, just this one last question. Do you think things would have been different uh, today had, had Lumumba uh, not been removed from power and, and assassinated? Uh <sighs> It's a it's a great question, which is what which is one that I've pondered over for quite a long time. You see, what Lumumba was able to do is chart literally the perimeter of of independence, what it could do and what it couldn't do. And what's remarkable about him is that he radicalized, didn't cave in, accepted that he might have to give his life, but that he radicalized with those moments in Congolese history, tightly compressed in that year, 1960 and 61. And those limits that he describes brilliantly as you know, the curse of independence, um, the failures of national liberation, ideas of course that were being worked out by um, Fanon, um, his comrade in arms, who published, of course, in 1961, The Wretched of the Earth. But, you know, in some ways, there had been a practical working out of these issues by Lumumba and the early <laughs> stalled independence that he represented. So what would have happened if Lumumba hadn't, um, um, hadn't been uh, murdered? Somehow had managed to maintain control of the Congo. We don't know. It would have required efforts at further radicalization across Congolese society. It would have involved a pan-African, and this was a point that Fallon realized, a pan-African effort to stand up and organize against the might of international <coughs> Northern former colonial power and corporations and to stall the ability to um, to intervene and break a meaningful um, national liberation. So that would have 
you know, that those, those ideas were bubbling under the surface, were always present in, you know, what Karl Marx described as the social movement in general. You know, so you have national independence, but actually the reality is you had extraordinary class forces, always bubbling, always pushing often these national movements further. So it would have required a different type of national liberation, one which was um, pan-national and international in scope. And there were those politics in different forms and different movements were um, um, developing. So there, there would, of course, have been possibilities. It was, it was going to be tough. Leo, thank you so much for, for writing the book. And uh, thank you for spending this time with us this morning. No, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for the invite, comrade. Zach Boschman here, co-owner of CitizenTruth.org. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Citizen Truth podcast. The intro and outro song is Enthusiast by Tours and is provided via the Creative Commons license. Please subscribe and check us out at CitizenTruth.org.